actually asked a couple of my children if, if they would be willing to take the discipline due to one of their siblings if the sibling had done something wrong. And they both responded with a quick no and a look of incredulity. Do you ever take the punishment that your brother or sister deserved? I don't think I would have, no. <laughs> All right, but, but this and, and far more is what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Welcome to the Practicology Podcast with Mike Knox and Matthew Kane. I'm Mike Knox. The second speaker in a moment will be Matthew Kane. It is so good to have you with us today. And while this is our 102nd episode, it's our first episode in a new occasional series that we're going to be doing called Good News for You, or GNFY for short. And in these GNFY episodes, we want to focus on presenting the truth of the gospel. Yeah, and the word gospel means good news, hence the G-N-F-Y subtitle, because the message of Jesus Christ is God's good news for you, for all of us. And I'm excited about the G-N-F-Y episodes because I love the gospel. Yeah, what an honor we have to present God's good news message to listeners. And whether you're a regular listener or you've just stumbled onto this podcast or maybe a friend sent you a link to it, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, giving us about 20 minutes today. Mike, let's start off the GNFY series with a real concise summary of what God's good news message is. How would you summarize the gospel? Well, I can't go wrong by summarizing it the way the Apostle Paul summarized it in Scripture. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, this is how he did it. He said, Now I want to make clear for you the gospel I preach to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Yeah, I thought you'd go there, and I love those words of 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to key in today on the first part of that summary of the good news, that Christ died for our sins. Our subtitle today is, How Could He Die for Me? The issue being, how could the action of Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago have any real bearing on my life today? Yeah, that's sort of a philosophical objection to the gospel. Uh, A skeptical person could say, you know, you Christians are always talking about Jesus dying on the cross, but how is it even possible for someone else's death a couple millennia ago to have any effect on us today? And is it even right that someone else would pay for our sins? And that's a great question. It's a legitimate question. And we're going to try and tackle it with four quick points. They are as follows. First, actions have consequences. Second, vicarious liability. Thirdly, the justice of Jesus dying for us. And lastly, how substitutionary sacrifice is a theme that pervades God's revelation in Scripture. Now, I think those titles might have made it sound a little bit more complex than it actually is. So, well, we do want you to engage your minds on the podcast. I don't want you to think this is that this is going to be a, a deep theological lecture. Well, I know you can make it easy to understand, Matthew. So start us off with point one, actions have consequences. It is not odd in the least to recognize that actions in the past have consequences. And some actions are of such massive significance that even though they took place a long time ago, we're still dealing with the consequences, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Abraham Lincoln, just one individual man, signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, saying, all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. Now, I know our North American societies also still suffer consequences of the slavery and racism that has existed too, but 
slavery is and has been illegal in the United States for 160 years. Now, if I had drafted and signed such a document, it wouldn't really mean anything. But because of who Abraham Lincoln was, the head of the nation, that one man's action has had abiding consequences. Yeah, and there doesn't have to be emancipation proclamations issued and reissued today to keep setting people free from slavery. Uh, People being born today get the benefit of that legal provision that was made 160 years ago. Right. So abiding consequences of past actions are not oddities to our understanding. Think of people in the armed forces who died in the 20th century's world wars, over 100,000 Canadians, over 500,000 Americans, over a million British servicemen and women lost their lives in those wars and many others in other wars to, to preserve freedoms that we enjoy today. We didn't have anything to do with that but we are enjoying abiding blessings that result from those actions long ago. My point is just that that concept of our enjoying the benefits of someone else's actions in the distant past, that is not a strange one in the least. Yeah, well, I I think that's fair, Matthew, and it's easy enough for us to see. But I think someone's still going to ask, how could Jesus' death affect me in the sense that the gospel says it does? You know, um, Yes, we enjoy freedoms because of other sacrifices, but how can one man's death atone for the sin of other people? Yeah, and I like that you use the word atone there, actually. Sort of a common word in our cultural vocabulary, but it's a really significant word in Christian theology, too. Today, we commonly use it to mean to make amends, to atone is to make amends or to compensate for a wrong thing that we've done. And that's similar to its meaning in the Christian scriptures. But in God's good news for you and me, it is Christ that makes atonement for us through his sacrificial death on the cross. We cannot atone for our own sins. But the one man that could is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I'm referencing 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 there. So yes, an essential feature of the Christian gospel is that our sins can be put away. We can be made clean from our sin because Christ died for our sins. How is that possible? Hey, that's what I asked you. So one way to understand this is through a correlation to our legal systems and the concept of vicarious liability. The word vicarious refers to something that is done or experienced in someone else's place. So we're saying the Lord Jesus' death was vicarious. He was our substitute. Right. So fundamental to the concept of the atonement is what is called penal substitution. The word penal relating to punishment. We may speak about a judicial system's penal code. How are criminals prosecuted and punished? Well, penal substitution is the truth that the Lord Jesus became our substitute on the cross. He took the punishment from God for our sins so that we don't have to face that punishment ourselves, even though we deserve it. Like we have in the text of 1 Corinthians 15, we cited earlier, Christ died for our sins. Or there's Romans 5 verse 8. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, but, But explain that legal term you mentioned a moment ago, Matthew. You said vicarious liability. Well, in our justice systems, there is such a thing as vicarious liability, where an individual becomes responsible for the actions of another person with whom he has a special relationship. Maybe one of the easiest examples is an employer and an employee. And just opposite our home right now, there's a crane at work moving things around to help erect a a six-story apartment building. 
If a construction worker mishandles the controls of that crane and topples a house that is right beside the construction site, then the company overseeing the construction will likely face vicarious liability. The employer, the the head of that company, didn't actually do anything wrong himself, but it's like the guilt is transferred to him or to the company, and the employer will pay for wrongs that, that it personally did not commit. Vicarious liability can also exist in a parent bearing some responsibility for a child's actions or the owner of a vehicle for someone else driving their vehicle. William Lane Craig, who's an extremely well-respected Christian philosopher, he uses this comparison and he concludes, what our justice system shows is that it is not true that the person who did the wrong has to be punished in order to satisfy the demands of justice. It is a person who is liable for that wrong that needs to be punished in order to satisfy justice. Well, this is helpful, Matthew. Uh, so, So when we speak of Christ's substitutionary death, we are saying that he became liable for our crimes, our violations of God's law. This is how he died for our sins. He, he didn't commit the crimes. Scripture is adamant that he didn't commit any sins. So he wasn't naturally liable, but he became liable in the wisdom of God presented in the gospel. Yeah, and my point is that's not entirely crazy on a philosophical level or, or a legal level. But when we think of what it required of the Lord Jesus— Well, then it is crazy amazing on another level. It's amazing grace is what it is. An innocent man, a righteous man, suffering the divine justice of Almighty God against the sins of the world. Not just the torture he encountered from Roman soldiers, but God's righteous punishment of our sins. In the prophetic words of Isaiah 53, written about 700 years before Christ came, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So he paid the price for our liberty with his blood. It cost him his life because as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So he died. And 1 Corinthians 1 makes a big deal out of this, saying that this is, not, this is not what man would have ever created as a means of salvation. This is not the wisdom of man. A crucified hero seems an oxymoron to us, but it is the wisdom and power of God for helpless sinners as we truly are. It is crazy amazing. It's wonderful. Uh, but Matthew, I think you and I could talk about the wonder of the cross death of Jesus Christ for us all day long, but I need to push you on to your third point. You've just talked about how Christ's death was substitutionary, but the objection arises is that just, you compared it to vicarious liability in our justice system, but we readily accept that an employer is responsible for actions carried out in its name on its job but you just described Jesus Christ as innocent and righteous. In fact, that was a title given to him in the first John 2 passage you cited earlier, Jesus Christ the righteous. So how is it just that a righteous man is made to suffer for sins he didn't commit? It seems like an affront to justice in some way. Yeah, as some have even, I would say they have said blasphemously, the Christian doctrine of the atonement is like cosmic child abuse. Well, William Lane Craig, if I could cite him again, he, he says that language is a, a cheap attempt to sway people with an emotionally charged metaphor. But he acknowledges the real objection is, does, does this violate the principles of retributive justice for God to punish an innocent party in the place of a different guilty person? And it's an understandable objection, but it's also well addressed by the Christian gospel, two ways. Number one, 
the Lord Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He was not merely a random man, not, not even merely a noble prophet that religious leaders just kind of nabbed and chose to make a, a scapegoat for their cause. That's not what was going on at the cross. The Lord Jesus offered himself willingly. 1 Timothy 2, 5, 6 says, there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And there's other scriptures that echo the same truth. Jesus understood that this was his mission. He did this willingly. He said as much in Mark 10, 45, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the bigger piece of the puzzle is the reason that he was willing. And that's because of who he is. If it were a case of God just selecting a random decent fellow or even a noble prophet and and grabbing him and arranging his death and saying that was for others, then maybe there would be a justified moral argument. I'm sure there would be. Like You you can't just go and pull someone off the street and say they're going to be sentenced in the place of a drunk driver who ran over someone. But that's not what the gospel is saying. And this is where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, the triunity of God, I know that's so precious to you, Mike, this is where this comes into the equation. Jesus is not merely a good man who had some new religious ideas. Jesus Christ is himself, God revealed in human flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, or Titus 2.13.14. It is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And frankly, this changes everything. Jesus was not merely an innocent third party brought unjustly into the equation between us and God. Jesus Christ is himself God. That's essential to the Christian gospel. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is more glorious and majestic than any salvation man could have ever devised because it is the offended, almighty, and perfect eternal God humbling himself and becoming a man in the person of his son. And that man Uh, going to the cross to die for his creature's sins because we couldn't pay the penalty ourselves. We can't suffer the consequences of our sins and live with God. The just consequences of our sins are, are hell and banishment from God forever. But God loves us, so he has a way for us to be saved from that punishment. It was if he, the offended party, came down in the person of his son and substituted himself for us, took the judgment for us, In the language of Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Mike, I I actually asked a couple of my children if, if they would be willing to take the discipline due to one of their siblings if the sibling had done something wrong. And they both responded with a quick no and a look of incredulity. Is it any different in your home or, or did you ever take the punishment that your brother or sister deserved? Well, I can't remember ever taking the punishment that one of my siblings deserved. Um, yeah, I don't think I would have. I wonder if one of my daughters would maybe be willing, if the punishment wasn't too bad, to take her sister's uh, place. But generally, no. <laughs> All right. But but this and and far more is what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And I love how you describe it as glorious and majestic. It it truly is. We've gone from wondering whether it is just to wondering at the grace of God and doing this for us. The, The message of the cross isn't a tragedy then. It's actually God's plan to triumph over evil. Yes, 
the Jewish authorities and Roman soldiers didn't carry out the crucifixion on their own. There was someone higher than them behind it. So Acts 2.23 says, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So notice that combination. Men did lawlessly nail him to a cross, but this was according to God's predetermined plan. And the Lord Jesus was part of that plan because he himself is God. There, there's no reasonable sense, admittedly, of substitutionary atonement, of Christ dying for our sins, unless Christ is himself God. And this just ties in really well with your first point, Matthew, about one man's actions having abiding consequences. Uh, you use the example of Abraham Lincoln. Well, if you, Matthew Kane, had drafted up that Emancipation Proclamation and signed it, it wouldn't mean much. But because it was the head of the nation that signed it, it meant something. It, it was law and it, and it abides. And this is how Christ's death can be so impactful for us today, even though we are nearly 2,000 years later. This is the death of the eternal Son of God. There is an infinite value in his death. Amen. And the New Testament book that most unfolds the doctrine of the gospel is Paul's letter to the Romans. And Romans 5 makes a big deal out of one man's actions affecting others. You just spoke about Abraham Lincoln as the head of the nation. Well, I had used that phrase earlier. Well, in Romans 5, it's comparing one act of the first man, Adam, and this one act of Christ, his death. As the first man, Adam was the head, the federal head of the human race. He was our representative, and he sinned and brought the human race down with him. Christ is the head of a new race of men and women a new creation. He is righteous, and it's through him that we become righteous and can live in harmony with God. He also is a representative, and he died our death. And through his one act, many can be declared righteous if their faith is in him. Well, sometimes people stumble at the concept of representation, but it's it's actually all around us. Uh, I mean, we, we have representatives in government, and they make decisions that affect us and our own parents make decisions that affect us. So uh, representing others is a very common thing in our society. Exactly. And while we admittedly may not like the fact that Adam messed up as our representative, we can certainly come to like the fact that Christ has represented us and done something for us that we could never do, and that is atone for our sins. So the good news of the Christian gospel is not only justice, it is grace. It's grace. We deserve the punishment, but Christ justly took it for us. Now, we need to wrap this up, Mike, but just let me cover my, my fourth point really quickly, and that is that this theme of substitutionary sacrifice pervades the scriptures. This is a big thing in God's mind. Long before Jesus came, God had long modeled this concept of an innocent substitute dying as a sacrifice for our sins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Old Testament scriptures, or we can call them the Hebrew scriptures, uh, written before Jesus was born, are like picture books that illustrate to us what Jesus and his work on the cross would mean. Uh, back then, they had this system of animal sacrifices that gave the people a ritual cleanness, but they're like previews of what the Lord Jesus would do to cleanse our consciences and, and our hearts. Yeah, well put. And I think one of the most fascinating ones is the once a year ritual called the Day of Atonement, Israel's Yom Kippur. And the high priest would take two goats for a sin offering. 
apologies to animal lovers and pet goat owners, but this is how it was in the olden days. And the high priest would sacrifice one of those goats. Its blood would be shed. With a living goat, the high priest would then confess the sins of the people as he laid his two hands on the head of the goat, symbolically transferring the guilt of the people onto that goat and then send it away to the wilderness. Scripture says that represented their iniquities, their sins being carried away. Well, I love that you're bringing this up. We literally read this in the Bible with my children and wife this morning and uh, <clears throat> pointed out that you've got this dual symbolism then. You've got one goat being sacrificed as their substitute and the other goat showing their sins being taken away as a result of that substitutionary death. Exactly. And this is the day of atonement. So this is God's picture to us of what the atoning sacrifice of Christ accomplished. And maybe maybe the clearest New Testament scripture to support this concept of penal substitution in the cross death of Jesus Christ is 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 24. Christ did not commit sin, but he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Right, because you've got Christ's innocence there, his righteousness, he did not commit sin. And you've got him bearing our sins in our place. And uh, that it's his wounds that heal us. That's from Isaiah 53, of course, where the wounds Jesus suffers are actually inflicted by God as a punishment for our sins. That's it. It's all there. Uh, I referenced William Lane Craig a couple of times earlier, and those statements came from an interview he gave to Scott Ray on the Think Biblically podcast, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Scott is himself a very accomplished scholar, professor of Christian ethics, dean of philosophy, and a senior fellow for the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. But there's something very simple that he said near the end of that interview that caught my attention. He said, it's hard to imagine there's a phrase so pregnant with meaning as when scripture says Christ died for our sins. And what the Bible puts in four words, we've spent lifetimes trying to unpack. Well, if William Lane Craig and uh, Scott Ray can spend their lifetime trying to unpack it, we obviously can't unpack it all in 25 minutes. But we hope this has been a help to our listeners today. Feel free to shoot us any questions. You can email us at info at practicologypodcast.com. You can also just go to the website, practicologypodcast.com and get various ways of linking up with our social media and so on. But we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find us both on our maybe not so super active Twitter accounts. Uh, I My handle is at mjhnox. And Matthew's handle is at GN Halifax. So thank you very much for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you all. Mm-hmm.